My name is Hannah. And I'm Ashley. And you are listening to Feminarratives, a weekly podcast covering overlooked stories in feminist history. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Feminarratives Podcast or on Twitter at FemPodcast or on our website at feminarrativespodc.wixsite.com slash my site. That is Wix, W-I-X. There you'll find uh, show notes, sources, contact form, extra content, information about us, your lovely hosts. Fill out our contact form. We want to yeah. want to hear from you. Give us your mansplaining stories. <laughs> or, or just listener stories. Listener stories. Get, let us you get to know us every week. Let, let <laughs> us get to know you. <laughs> it's a two-way street. Uh, How are you today, Ashley? Oh, I'm doing. What day of quarantine are we on right now uh so yeah so we're at about at the month point happy one month of happy quarantine one month of quarantine uh if you're like us and living in wisconsin uh you've got more than a month left to go so. Had almost halfway hang in there with when us when this airs it'll be 420 if you are feeling in you are in a mental health crisis situation you can text 741741. Uh, you'll be matched with a volunteer counselor who is supervised by a licensed mental health professional. It's free. Uh, you can go to crisistextline.org for more information about it. But if you do feel like you need it, it is free. All right. <laughs> so this week, Hannah will be leading us yes. for 420. For 420. 420, man. Uh, I'm going to be taking us on a tour of some badass ladies getting high. (laughs) (laughs) So before we really get into it, I want to do a brief overview of the kind of history of underrepresentation of women in medical research, and more specifically, psychedelic research. So medical studies have historically had inadequate female participation and representation. So this can kind of stem from um, an availability bias because men don't know to watch for women's issues because they're not women, and if they're not kind of confronted by it, Mm -hmm. they don't realize it's a thing. Women have been left out of studies due to reproductive concerns, so the worry that participation in a study would affect a woman's ability to have or raise children which um, is a hugely gray area. It's not as old-timey terrible as it sounds. Yeah. So, like, in the 50s, it, it probably was because women can't do research or it was weird for a woman to participate in a study. Mm-hmm. A lot of studies today will put out calls for participants and there will be a line for, like, must not be a woman who is or may become pregnant. Oh. And that's be It's more of a cover-our-ass move than anything else because if... You know, you're in your 20s and you sign up to do this study and you make 50 bucks and mm-hmm. you're like, I'm not having kids anytime soon. This is fine. And then, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, you have kids. And if there were birth defects that could be traced back to the study you were a participant in, yeah, that's like a huge liability for whoever is running the, right. the study. So it's less of an example of like old white dudes, like, rubbing their hands so they're going, ha ha, we're yeah. gonna be sexist and more of just, like, a really gray area. Like, it is keeping people safe because it's transparent. This is why scientific <laughs> science, science just needs to progress far enough that men can also <laughs> carry children to term. <laughs> just to eat, that is, we will truly reach gender equilibrium. 
So the the sort of gray area regarding gender and studies kind of goes both ways because while women get left out of studies, men also can get left out of studies. So just keeping in our gender equality themes, migraines, uh, way more is known about migraines for women um, because more women, it's more common in Mm -hmm. women. But then studies focus mainly on women, and it's harder to find men to come be participants, but then, like, female data is just extrapolated to cover men. Um, So a good example of the repercussions of leaving women out of medical studies is heart attacks. So early heart attack research in America focused primarily on men, and then the data that they, similar to migraines now, the data was extrapolated and just applied to women, thinking, Mm -hmm. like, how differently can it be? Like, it's all the cardiovascular system. Yeah. Um, But it turns out pretty different because heart attacks in women versus men are super different as far as symptoms go. Mm -hmm. So symptoms for men are the classic chest pain, shortness of breath, pain in your arms, shoulders, neck, or back. Mm -hmm. But women, it's, it can be dizziness, unusual tiredness, heart burn like feelings and like nausea so oh god very vague uh um, that sounds i think like... i'm having a heart attack right now right <laughs> it sounds like me maybe once a week <laughs> right. at least and the, so the male symptoms for a heart attack are much more widely talked about so m- a lot of women don't realize that they are having a heart attack and because of that women are more likely to die from it um because you know, it doesn't seem that serious, like... Right, I just, yeah. Like, I, it's just kind of, you don't feel good, and it doesn't seem like... Right, I guess even knowing that information, I could be having a heart attack right? and just be like, oh, it's just... It could be... Yeah. It could be anything. I, I just feel a little bleh today, like, it's... Right. I probably haven't eaten enough, or I just need water, or... Right. Well, and then when you add to that, you know, male heart attacks happen younger, women... Heart attacks in women happen in the 70s. So a lot of people, by the time you're that old and you're like, I got heartburn, I'm dizzy, I don't feel good, it could be any myriad of reasons, really. And Mm -hmm. because information wasn't publicly expressed for a long time, you just, people don't realize. I could do a whole episode on women's heart health, but basically the Red Dress campaign started in 1997, which is this movement to raise awareness about heart attacks and strokes in women. And the number of women dying from heart attacks drastically dropped over the next 10-ish years. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, There's also a significant it's-all-in-your-head attitude towards issues in women's health. Mm -hmm. Like like we've been saying, the heart attack symptoms could be brushed aside super easily as, oh, you just don't feel good or whatever. That happens a lot with endometriosis. Oh, you're fine. It's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to, like, I've had doctors tell me that. Just take an ibuprofen. And that leads to not going to the hospital or seeking medical help when you probably should have because, Mm -hmm. oh, it is, it's just my head, I'll take a nap, I'll feel better, or give it a week, or whatever, Mm -hmm. instead of getting the care that you need. The, this underrepresentation carries over into the pharmaceutical world as well. So between 1997 and 2001, eight out of ten drugs that were withdrawn from the market had greater health risks for women than men. So they were withdrawn from the market, which is good, but they did affect women much more adversely than men. So as far as psychedelic research goes, it is not currently known if psychedelics affect biologically female bodies different than male, um, either neither pre- or post-menopausal. There have been some studies that are giving evidence that, shockingly, it does affect 
women versus men differently. A study of 54 men and 20 women participants gave evidence supporting that MDMA uh, or ecstasy or 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine um, has a more intense effect on women than men. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also like to point out that that study had less than 50% female participants. Oh. <laughs> women in the study also reported more adverse effects than the men in correlation with dose amount. And a 2016 study showed that female club goers were two to three times more likely to seek emergency medical treatment after taking MDMA than men. And this was just from recorded hospital trips, so it could be due to a number of reasons. Like, yes, it could be a different in body chemistry, but it could also be who is more likely to go to the hospital. Yeah. When they are when they feel like something is wrong. Um, because yeah. Because I could definitely see that playing a factor. Playing a factor. Yeah, I also, I guess... Like, I mean, if you're getting MDMA, you're not getting it from, like, a... Right. You're not getting it from a pharmacist. You're getting it from, like, a drug dealer who's not right. going to be like, and here's my lady dose, and here's right. my male dose. Right, here's a dose for your weight, and here's how much... Here's a dosage regimen that you should follow. <laughs> right. And it also might not even be good ecstasy. I would say don't take ecstasy. I just know enough horror stories where it really is dangerous. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I wonder because... Just say no. Because women are generally smaller, if right. it would just affect them more heavily. Right, well, and I know um, hormone, like, estrogen can throw things way out of whack, oh, yeah. so who knows. In actually conducting psychedelic research, so on the, like, hard scientific side, women are still un- underrepresented, which it is getting better, um... But the field of psychedelic research is pretty heavily restricted, so, Mm -hmm. you know, not a ton of people are doing it to Mm -hmm. begin with. Dr. Erica Dyke at the University of Saskatchewan is quoted as saying, My historical research suggests that women were almost always involved in the counseling sessions, recruitment, etc., but are very rarely identified in the published work. The legacy of that history continues to distort our understanding of who does the work and what kind of work is valued. And there were so many women who had and have done psychedelic research who I wanted to talk about but couldn't get enough information because if they're doing research in the 50s or 60s, a lot of times either they're doing research pretty commonly with their husband and it's published under their husband's name Mm -hmm. or the male partner is the head of the lab and it's published under his name. So there's very little personal information known other than like sometimes this woman is mentioned on a paper. Yeah. And that happens all the time. With that, I'm going to get right into stories of some women taking drugs and kicking ass. Sweet. Uh, Starting with Mabel Dodge Luhan or uh, Mabel Evans Dodge Stern Luhan. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> we'll come up. I do, she's one of the only people that I do sort of a life story of because it was a trip and a half um, in I... more ways than one. That's a lot of names. <laughs> it's a lot of names. Uh, a lot of men in this woman's life <laughs> and women. <laughs> so, uh, Mabel Evans Dodge Stern Luhan, born on February 26, 1879 in Buffalo, New York. Mabel was the heiress to a wealthy New York banker named Charles Ganson. Uh, 1900, she married Carl Evans at the age of 21, and the couple soon had their son, Edwin. No, no. Tragically, Carl died two years later in a hunting accident, leaving Mabel widowed with her two-year-old son. But she seemed to recover well enough, and within two years struck up a torrid affair with a well-known gynecologist. Oh. Her parents found out and sent her to Paris, because... (laughs) I guess if they got the money, they can... Also, that sounds fine. Like, just go to Paris for a while. It's all right. 
Uh, a few years after her first husband's death, Mabel married wealthy architect Edwin Dodge, so her son and her second husband were both named Edwin, which is just a really weird dynamic. Right. Cause, well, yeah, because I feel like somebody would, like, meet the kid and be like, oh, is he named, is after, he named your after, hu- after your husband? No, no. Well, he died in a... And it didn't say how. It just said a hunting accident. So, son and husband have the same name. However, Mabel was also openly bisexual in her social circles, and wrote about many romantic encounters with men and women in her 1933 autobiography, Intimate Memories, which isn't available online for free, which was very sad to me. She comes up on a lot of lists of bisexual women to, yeah. to learn about. So from 1905 to 1912, Mabel and her Edwins lived near Florence, Italy, where she entertained famous art personalities, such as Gertrude Stein and her partner Alice Toklas, and there's this whole really long list of famous Parisian jazz age artists that nice. she would just come over because she's loaded and lives in Europe and that's nice. what people did. Uh, Mabel hit another low point mental health wise after it was discovered she'd been having an affair with her chauffeur. She apparently made it through and became estranged from her second husband and left Europe to move to Greenwich Village in New York and set up her apartment as a salon for the arts. And oh. she threw bunch of parties for her artsy New York friends, and it is at this point that Mabel discovers peyote tea. Oh. So we're Good. going to take a, a scenic drive through the world of peyote before we get too far into Mabel Luhan's peyote use. Mm-hmm. So peyote, or Lafophora williamsi, is a small spineless cactus native to Mexico and southwestern Texas. It contains psychoactive alkaloids such as... Three, four, five, trimethoxyphenethylamine, or mescaline. <laughs> mescaline occurs naturally in a number of members of the Cactaceae family, and when ingested, it has similar effects to LSD and psilocybin, affecting the body's dopamine and noradrenaline neurotransmitters, which leads to intense visual and auditory hallucinations. Oh, good. Indigenous people have used peyote for medicinal purposes, from treating toothaches to arthritis to childbirth pain, which can you imagine giving birth and being high as a kite on peyote? That sounds like the worst trip environment So in the history of trip environments. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out, because been, I've been in the room with a friend who was giving birth. Hey, Tony. There'd be probably less pain... But, but I don't know that I want to be hallucinating as I'm, like... Like, wildly hallucinating while you go through this also, physically traumatic, really... Then, like, the first time you see your you're kid, you're also... Hell. <laughs> like, that sounds horrible. That sounds like my actual nightmare. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. So, the way it's made in an edible form, the top of the cactus is chopped off and dried into what is called a button. A button! Which is about the size of a of a nickel when it's all dried up. Um, and the Cute. buttons can be eaten or steeped into a tea. Either way, it is apparently extremely bitter, so most people nowadays uh, will keep it dried and then grind it up and put it into capsules to swallow whole. Oh, yeah. Um, so, back to Mabel. Yes. Uh, Mabel Luhan, who at this point is called Mabel Dodge was introduced to peyote by Raymond Harrington, an anthropologist at the American Museum of Natural History, and what a name for an anthropologist. Is That is not the most old-timey. He <laughs> would be an anthropologist. Uh, Harrington had been telling guests stories about his guided peyote trips and that he, in fact, had some on him. Because you don't go to a 1920s 
artsy party without a pocket full of peyote. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever drugs you can come up with, really. Uh, Mabel got very excited and decided that everyone at the party should try it. And Harrington, at this point, deemed himself Chief Harrington and decided to become spirit guide for everyone to bring them through the process of getting super high off cactus tea. So he told everyone there were some items and preparations that needed to take place. Mm -hmm. They would need constant singing, a green arrow, eagle feathers, a fire, and a path, with a capital P, to enter the realm of the cactus, and that they would all need to fast (laughs) with it. So, and I don't know what time or for how long this party lasted, but they all apparently fasted and got all the eagle feathers out of New York that they needed, and at 9 p.m. started their journey into the cacti realm. How long did they have to fast for? I don't know. <laughs> like, skip a meal fast? So, they, they drink the tea the jazzy juice, uh, Mabel described a numbness of her limbs and around her mouth and an unstoppable need to laugh. Another partygoer reported a death of the flesh, which sounds horrifying. That doesn't sound fun at all. Oh, ego deaths. Um, I think. That might be something yeah, different. Yeah, it's just a death of the flesh and then said that they had discovered a shortcut to the soul. And yeah, that sounds like an ego death. <laughs> Yet another guest saw the walls of the house fall away and was following a lovely river for miles through the most wonderful virginal virginal forest he had ever known. That sounds nice. Mm -hmm. Just, like, hiking through the woods. Um, And another guest just lay on the floor smiling. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that could also be nice. (laughs) Um, Mabel got tired of just lying on the floor of her living room and decided to lay down in her bedroom, but unfortunately... She was still high as hell and couldn't fall asleep. Goes back into her living room and is like, hey, where is this guest? And spirit guide Harrington totally failed in his babysitting duties. Probably because he was jamming to that groovy cactus juice and let a party guest just up and leave the apartment. No. Still high on peyote to wander the streets of New York alone. No. Um, luckily the guest was found by a sober friend, so they, and I guess they let Mabel know, hey, we found her, we found her and she's sleeping off that high now, um, and Mabel at this point was very worried that the cops were gonna show up and bust the whole party, which Mm -hmm. I don't have information, but I imagine they were also concerned about having booze on the premises. Oh. Possibly, I don't know, I don't have... I would imagine it would be during Prohibition. Mm -hmm. So, at this point, Congress had just passed the Harrison Narcotics Act that outlawed non-medical drug consumption, which is why she was very concerned that if the cops picked up her super high guest, Mm -hmm. it would lead back. Um, Sort of wrapping up our story with Mabel. Many years husbands and peyote trips later, Mabel found herself living in Taos, New Mexico to follow a vision that had come to her in a dream. Uh, she and her third husband, Maurice Stern, had set up an art collective on a 12-acre property paid for by Mabel because she is loaded. Mm-hmm. Tensions arose when Tony Luhan, a local Native American man, decided to live on their front lawn in a teepee and drum every night in an attempt to summon Mabel to him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Maurice wasn't down with this and went out and bought a shotgun uh, to chase Tony off the property, but he couldn't figure out how to use it and ended up just leaving New Mexico altogether. <laughs> it wouldn't work for me, but if it works for you, dude... It is a move. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is. 
uh, Mabel continued to support Maurice financially until their divorce some years later. Uh, Mabel and Tony were eventually married, and they stayed together for the next 40 years, funding indigenous art, writing poetry, and getting very high off peyote in the desert. Nice. Uh, and with that, we're going to take a quick break. Welcome. Uh, so we left off on our tour of women and psychedelic drugs yes. to celebrate 420. <laughs> and next I'm going to move along some sort of a timeline to Valentina Wasson. Oh. Uh, Valentina Pavlova Wasson was born in 1901 in Russia. Her family soon emigrated to America to escape the Russian Revolution, which very little information was available about her at this point, but that's badass on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, she became a pediatrician in America, so there's sort of a big blank time span yeah. of about 20 years, but she becomes a pediatrician, and in 1926 marries Robert Gordon Wasson, and they honeymoon in the Catskills, where she found edible mushrooms. And uh, she was like, oh, these are just, like, the ones we have in Russia, which I'm not, sh I don't have if mush magic mushrooms that have psilocybin grow natively in Russia, but I do know that a big part of Russian culture was collecting mushrooms, so you'd walk through the woods with, like, a mm. basket, basically, and mm -hmm. collect mushrooms, and it was, like, a, I'm sure, cook them up, but it, that's, like, a thing, so yeah, it makes sense why she was doing this, mm -hmm. looking for mushrooms in the Catskills. Uh, they started describing themselves as ethnomycologists, so a person who studies the cultural use of mushrooms, especially the psychedelic kind, and they kind of coined that term. Mm -hmm. The Wassons traveled to the Mazatec village of Huautla de Jimenez in Mexico to research the traditional use of mushrooms, and they actually became the first outsiders to participate in psilocybin mushroom veladas in 1955, so this was, like guided religious ceremonies mm -hmm. among indigenous people in certain areas of Mexico. Their sessions were led by a woman named Maria Sabina, who was, like, a, a traditional, they called them shamans, mm -hmm. a traditional person who led these ceremonies, and it was very, gotcha. like, very religious and spiritual. Mm -hmm. A big part of that specific culture. Uh, Maria Sabina was the first Mazatec shaman to allow Westerners per to participate in the ceremonies, and the Wassons brought spores of psilocybe mexicana, or magic mushrooms, back to Europe, and they cultivated their own mushroom crops, mm -hmm. and the mushrooms that they grew were used in the discovery and isolation of psilocybin and psilocin, which is kind of the active ingredient mm -hmm. in uh, mushrooms yeah. that get you high. The Wassons also wrote a book together titled Mushrooms, Russia, and History in 1957. But despite introducing her husband to mushrooms and sort of starting this whole journey, because he didn't want to take the mushrooms, she was like, hey, let's do these mushrooms I found. Mm -hmm. And he was not into it, and it started this interesting dialogue of what cultures are cool with psychedelics, basically. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't into it originally. But despite introducing him to mushrooms, she went largely unrecognized for her contributions in their joint works, and they actually worked alongside each other as partners until her death in 1958. And it is the 50s, so this very easily could have been a, you are published under your husband's name. Mm-hmm. But it still sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so another little drug detour, didn't talk about psilocybin. 
So psilocybin is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound found in more than 200 species of mushrooms. Its effects are similar to mescaline, which we talked about, uh, LSD, and dimethyltryptamine, or DMT. Psilocybin is rapidly metabolized to psilocin, which is the other thing that was isolated from the Wasson's Mm -hmm. shroom crops, um, and it affects the serotonin receptors in the brain. Effects can include euphoria, hallucinations, changes in perception, a distorted sense of time, uh, all of which can give a sense of a spiritual experience. And a lot of people will talk about, like, I went to a different plane of existence and it actually changes how your brain is interpreting things. So, mm. like, the way it affects very specific serotonin receptors, like, your it changes how your eyes work, basically, and, like, how your ears are or how your brain is interpreting the input. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, of course it's going to be really freaking weird because it basically scrambled up how your brain interprets everything and your brain is like, I got to apply some sort of logic yeah. <laughs> to what I am seeing right now. <laughs> Which is why it seems very convincing for people who are like, no, I communicated with, right. you know, whatever being. And it's like, no. Adverse effects do happen and can include nausea and panic attacks. I know that's a big one if the environment isn't good or you go into it with anxiety Mm -hmm. or any number of reasons. It can be really triggering for people, which would then be a terrifying experience because uh, the effects can last between two to six hours. And because your perceptions are all out of whack, that, that can feel like three days. So if it becomes uncomfortable or anxious... Yeah, yikes. Prehistoric paintings also show that the use of psilocybin mushrooms predates recorded history. Oh. Yeah, which I don't have any pictures of it, but I'm imagining... Yeah, I'm loving the picture of, like, the Flintstones, but just <laughs> tripping balls. Tripping mushrooms. Fred. Fred and Barney. Wilma. <laughs> the Spanish first reported the use of magic mushrooms and spiritual ceremonies in 16th century Mesoamerica. And talking about a little bit, Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman is the one who isolated psilocybin from the Wasson's mushrooms. Mm -hmm. Pure psilocybin was marketed to doctors for psychedelic psychotherapy, but laws put in place during the 60s stopped most research into the drug. But recreational use grew over the decade as as users used mushrooms as spiritually enhancing agents. So I think this was a big part of, like, 60s psychedelic culture. Yeah. Psilocybin became classified as a Schedule One drug in 1970, uh, so illicit drugs that have no known therapeutic benefit, and I'll go into uh, drug scheduling later on mm-hmm. in this episode. Current clinical trials may lead to recategorization to a Schedule Four drug, so uh, similar to prescription sleep aids, but with tighter control. So this brings us to our next lady, Kathleen Harrison. So Kathleen grew up off the coast of California in the 1960s. Her father was a naturalist and really stressed the importance of nature Mm -hmm. in his family. She visited Mexico for the first time with her family at six years old and her ended up living there for several months in a small village. She went on to study ethnobotany independently. So ethnobotany is sort of the study of how people have used plants through history. Mm -hmm. So she studied ethnobotany ethnobotany independently during her travels in the 60s and 70s by asking local people about the plants that they use in their daily lives. So, like, um, what they would eat, what they would use as medicine, mm-hmm. recreational use, like tobacco and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, she got her undergrad in art studies and got into botanical illustration. 
and she said art taught her to look closely at the relationship of form and function in the natural world. In the late 60s and early 70s, she started exploring psychedelics. In 1975, she met her uh, husband, Terrence McKenna, and he figured out how to grow psilocybin-containing mushrooms that had originated in Mexico. So I imagine that just involved, went to Mexico, got some spores, grew the shrooms. <laughs> he, they started using mushrooms to study nature more closely, which oh. it just, I think they just got, they went in to nature and got really high off mushrooms. Yeah. And she's quoted as saying, I took my first bite, dodged my reaction to the bitterness, and proceeded steadily through many bites to the end. By the time I had consumed almost the entire bundle, I was saturated with a taste that was sharp and fresh and ancient all at once. I had a momentary sense of how very long these people had been doing this ritual, the generations that had sought the wisdom of this plant spirit. Suddenly there was a shimmering. The surrendero blew the candles out for total darkness, and within seconds I was completely in another realm, astonished. Some part of me ate the final bite, and I relaxed into another place. I was in the presence of a great female being, a woman, 20 feet high and semi-transparent. <laughs> Which oh, can Jesus. either be badass or truly terrifying. Oh, God. I feel like I'd be like, oh, <laughs> Why? Who is this ghost lady and why is she so tall? Uh, her now former husband was really into DMT, psilocybin, and LSD. And I have some hilarious experiment notes from an interview with him in the 70s. Here we go. So, uh, zero seconds. Zero minutes, zero seconds. First toke. Colors brighten, edges sharpen, distant things gain clarity. There is a sense as though all the air in the room has been sucked out. Ten seconds. Second toke. You close your eyes and colors begin racing together and it forms this mandalic, floral, slowly rotating thing, usually yellow-orange, which he apparently called the chrysanthemum. Then you either break through it or you require one more toke. (laughs) 20 seconds. Third toke. The chrysanthemum parts. There's a sound of a plastic bread wrapper or the crackling of a flame and an impression of transition. Then it's as though there were a series of tunnels or chambers that you were tumbling down. 40 seconds. You burst into this, quote, place. Uh, 50 seconds. You're appalled. You're thinking, Jesus H. Christ, what is this? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it gets real wild at one minute. The elves, or jeweled self-dribbling basketballs, come running forward. They're singing, chanting, speaking in some kind of language that is very bizarre to hear. But what is more important is that you can see it, which is completely confounding. So I think you can see the language. Mm-hmm. And also, something is going on. Uh, he apparently came to call it love, L-U-V, not light utility vehicle, but love that is not like eros or not like sexual attraction. Something almost like a physical thing, a glue that pours out of this place. I'm still stuck on jeweled self-dribbling <laughs> basketball. <laughs> that also might be elves. Uh, I can keep going with this. A minute and ten. Each self-machine creature elbows others aside, says, look at this, look at this, take this, choose me. They come toward you, and then, and you have to understand that they don't have arms, so we're kind of downloading this into a lower dimension to even describe it, but what they do is they offer things to you. You realize what you're being shown, this proliferation of elf gifts or celestial toys, which seems somehow alive, is impossible. This state of incredible frenzy continues for about three minutes, during which the elves are saying, Don't give way to wonder. Do not abandon yourself to amazement. 
pay attention, pay attention, look at what we're doing, look at what we're doing, and then do it. Do it! <laughs> is this minutes and seconds, or is this hours and minutes? Oh. I bet you it's hours and minutes. I bet it's minutes. hours and minutes. Listeners, I'm not gonna reread the whole thing. <laughs> we're actually at four hours and ten minutes now. That makes a lot more sense. Four hours, ten minutes. Then, and only 5% report this, everything stops and they wait, and you- f- So apparently only 5% repeat- Report the self-dribbling basketball elves. I don't know. (laughs) Everything stops and they wait, and you feel like, uh, you feel like a torch, a spark lit in your belly that begins to move up your esophagus. Then your mouth flies open and this language-like stuff comes out. It's sound, but what you're experiencing is a visual modality where these tones are surfaces, shading, colors, insets, jewels, and you are making something. The elves go mad with joy. So he's ma- is he just shouting? <laughs> <laughs> I really thought that that was going towards him vomiting, honestly. <laughs> Four hours, 40 minutes. The whole thing begins to collapse in on itself, and they literally begin to physically move away from you. And usually their final shot is actually, is they actually wave goodbye. There's a ripple through the system, and you realize these two continua are being pulled apart. Um, once, as the pull-away maneuver began, all the elves turned simultaneously and looked at him and said, Deja vu! Deja vu! And then he adds, and often it's very erotic, although I'm not sure if that's the word, but it's almost like sex is on the surface of what this is the vol- of which this is the volume. And I'm a great fan of sex. I don't mean to denigrate it. I mean to raise DMT to a very high status. <laughs> Five hours, you're raving about it. That's all he had in five hours? <laughs> Seven hours, you can't remember it. You say, this is the most amazing thing, this is the most amazing thing, this is, what am I talking about? But Kenna thought DMT might have a role in dreaming, in part because the way a dream melts away is the way a DMT trip melts away at the same speed. Uh, and that's, that's where he leaves us. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> Kathleen Harrison, I'm sure, was also tripping it's just her notes he terrence mckenna is super famous in the world of psychedelics but his wife who actually i'll get into it more did just as much for psychedelic research Mm -hmm. if you want to call it that as her husband did um so in 1985 they found the botanical it's called the botanical dimensions together and she is like the president of it uh, Botanical Dimensions is a nonprofit ethnobotanical preserve on Hawaii's Big Island. They collect, protect, propagate, and study plants of ethnomedical significance and lore. So there is a fair amount of like cultural preservation uh-huh. with it, which I do think is important. It is just also very funny when it's yeah a bunch of people taking DMT. Just a bunch of white <laughs> people white getting people. real high. Part of their mission is to appreciate, study, and educate others about plants and mushrooms of importance to cultural integrity and spiritual well-being. So I do think the cultural side of it does have some merit. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a 19, they have a 19-acre botanical garden, thousands of plants that have been used by indigenous people of tropical regions, and they started a database containing info about uh, the purported healing properties. But I, you know, anything that has a large database, I'm all in on. (laughs) So they do have a really good record of, like, this is what happens when you take this type of mushroom and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, like, relation to cultural importance. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Kathleen has served as Botanical Dimensions president and project director since its founding, and she still does that today. Nice. Um, she also teaches classes or field courses, so in Hawaii through the University of Minnesota and Goddard College, and then she teaches in Peru through the Albany College of Health Sciences. Uh, she's done fieldwork in Latin America for 30 years and has supported indigenous projects in Mexico, Peru, Ecuador, and Costa Rica, uh, working with an exchange of nature-based knowledge with indigenous people in the mountains of Mexico, more specifically the Mazatec people of the Mazatec people of Oaxaca, 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 mm-hmm. uh, and working with a healer in his family there so very closely with the culture he she said he in particular has taught me a great deal about how various species of mushrooms fit into the worldview and medicine of their culture she also does not support the use of mushrooms as a party drug she is Mm. all in on the spirituality side of it and using it with a lot of respect for native cultures that originally cultivated and used it yeah that i can get on board with I guess peyote and ayahuasca have a much, like, deeper tie to indigenous cultures. Those are the things that I guess I associate more with, I don't know, like, getting high and doing art. Right. Yeah, it's much more, like, artsy hippie stuff than, like, let's party and hallucinate some crazy stuff. I guess LSD is kind of on, like, the Venn diagram. Like, like, kind of the middle, Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think there's some people later on where I don't take it as seriously, I think this has more value as, like, ethnobody is pretty important to mm-hmm. preserve facets of a culture. Yeah. Um, she also does some work to support women in the field of psychedelic research. Um, yeah. And she says women have not historically sought public rec- recognition for their contributions in psychedelic uh, research for a number of reasons. I'm going to play a video now. She's very calming. Very calming. Um, I just kind of, I want her to hug me. <laughs> she seems very, cu- like, if I had to do mushrooms, yeah, I would want her to be there. <laughs> yes. Um, so she, in the video, I don't know if we'll be able to play it because of copyright mm. uh, stuff, but she talks about how women are less likely to be vocal about their work in psychedelics, and this has sort of a societal context. So there was an article... <laughs> on Vice uh, that said she ran the risk of losing her kids for lecturing on illegal drugs, which I can't corroborate, Mm -hmm. but I would imagine it's, it's much more taboo for a woman, especially at the time, to be vocal about illicit drugs Mm -hmm. because we are especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s expected to be like you are a mother first what you do to your body might affect your children and yeah will you be able to be a parent if you do this and i think that it was more taboo for women to do it than men because there's a certain yeah kind of like anonymity to being a man (laughs) you don't think like that guy's probably a dad Right. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, especially at the time, if there was a woman, you would kind of assume that she had kids. So with that, I'm going to edge into the more pseudoscience part. But it was very funny, and it also has a lot to do with feminism. Yes. So I'm going to talk yes, about... Yes. Uh, psychedelic feminism in an organization called Cosmic Sister. Oh. So this is where we start even trippier than we've been. Good. Uh, so psychedelic feminism is a term coined by the founder of Cosmic Sister, whose name is Zoe Elen. From the website zoehelen.com, she is an artist, environmentalist, and cultural activist best known for women's empowerment and sacred plants such as cannabis, ayahuasca, and psilocybin mushrooms, our co-evolutionary allies, which (laughs) 
to be co-evolutionary, like, an example would be, like, fungus, like, algae and sloths have co-evolved, so, like, there's a whole, like, little ecosystem going on with sloths, and, like, without the algae, the sloths aren't as healthy. Mm -hmm. I do not think humans have co-evolved with magic (laughs) mushrooms or any of the ingredients of ayahuasca or, you know, cannabis. (laughs) I think that they were part of cultures, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that there is an evolution, like, co-evolution happening. Zoe believes that creating a true balance of power across the gender spectrum globally is the only way humans and non-humans will survive. And in another interview, she talks about how our current patriarchal system will bring about the destruction of all life on Earth, which same. <laughs> all right, I can get on board with that. Get behind it. Cosmic Sister does do some cool stuff as far as empowering women goes, but it is tied to just getting very high in the Peruvian Amazon. <laughs> so they do work there where ayahuasca is legal and grows naturally, which they stress a lot on their website. Uh, they mostly create a really safe environment in traditional settings with a ceremonial guide mm-hmm. for women to trip. <laughs> Uh, the goal is to use the trip to explore core feminist issues in fresh and exciting ways, which, yeah, I'll bet they're exciting. <laughs> they also host panels about feminism and traditional plant use and the intersection of the two. So it is a fresh take on feminism. Uh, Less what I would call research coming out of this. Yeah. But you can make the argument that it, it is, it seems very um, empowering for women. Like, mm-hmm. all the pictures are these beautiful, powerful looking women in the Amazon at one with nature and each other. <laughs> which I can find that. They offer a range of grants for women who want to explore their spirituality and consciousness. Um, And Zoe says, These projects focus on helping women educate the public honestly about the benefits and risks of psychedelics and cannabis and the responsible use of sacred plants in consciousness, expanding mind, body, spirit, wellness work with sacred plants such as ayahuasca. So there is some value, Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, It's just maybe less credible. Yeah, I... Yeah, I guess it's not as research-based, but I guess if that's not what they're going for, if they're just going more for, like, here's a space for women to feel safe doing this. Right. It's more, I would say, like, anecdotal Mm -hmm. results than what I would call a scientific study. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, right before we break, I'm going to talk about ayahuasca. Yeah. Our next drug under the spotlight. Uh, The next drug on our trip, On our trip. Uh, Ayahuasca is a tea-like brew made from the South American vine Banisteriopsis capi. So it's like a, like a hot tea, but it's, it looked pretty frothy from the photos. Frothy tea. Uh, And also some other plant ingredients that I'll talk about in a second. It was originally used among indigenous peoples of the Amazon basin as a spiritual medicine in traditional ceremonies. The vine has alkaloids that act as monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOIs. Uh, MAOIs are potent antidepressants and have been used in treating panic disorders and phobias, as well as Parkinson's. Mm. So there is stuff known about that part. Ayahuasca also contains part of the shrub Psychotria viridis, which supplies this primary psychoactive ingredient dimethyltryptamine, which is DMT, which we talked about earlier. Then the MAOIs are required for the DMT to be orally active. So if you just do the shrub, it won't work if you're Mm -hmm. 
drinking it, essentially. Yeah. Um, so basically, I don't want to get too crazy into the chemistry of it, but mm-hmm. uh, the monoamine oxidase inhibitors make you feel really good, and the DMT makes you trip really hard. Uh, so with that, we're going to take a quick break. And we are back in our podcast yurt. Podcast yurt. Uh, Before I talk more about trippy ladies, I'm going to talk about cannabis. (laughs) Happy 420, Uh, everybody. Hope you're in a state where it's legal. Shout out to all my (laughs) Michigan friends. Uh, So cannabis, or the devil's lettuce, comes from the cannabis plant, which can be cannabis sativa indica or ruderalis. But fun fact, these might all be the same species. So people will talk about strains, but it is not accepted in, like, the botanical world as being individual species. Oh, yeah. No, my favorite is... I'm not going to name any names because uh, legal reasons, but (laughs) uh, certain people in their stoner science about how different strains do different things. There might be different concentrations of CBD or THC Mm -hmm. between the strains, uh, so the main psychoactive component is tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. Cannabidiol, I think I'm saying that right, or CBD is not the same thing as THC. Um, and I could go into a longer explanation of the difference between THC and CBD and how they work in the body. But basically, CBD is not the part that gets you high. THC mm-hmm. is. So CBD right now is kind of a hot topic uh, with a lot of claims to treat a lot of stuff and it is very much a modern day cure-all because it's like oh anxiety and sleep and appetite and and also apparently your skin whoever is making makeup with cbd coffee like stop and stop putting weed on your face stop it and a good rule of thumb is like if anything is claiming to be a cure-all it most likely doesn't do anything that it is that mm-hmm. it claims to do. So there are things that it can do. So it's being they're looking into treating pain and anxiety, and I'll go into more detail in just a bit about more research with it, which there's a lot of evidence that it could do it could be helpful in some for some treatment type things. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the concentration that you can get, like if you buy a bottle of CBD from your local Whole Foods, the dosage, so the concentration in that bottle is so low, you would have to drink multiple bottles of it. And because to get it as a, in liquid form, it has to be an oil. If you are drinking a lot of an oil, it's going to make you poop a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just going to act like a laxative, basically. Mm-hmm. This is a side trip down um, pop culture yeah. medicine. Basically, CBD doesn't do that much. Stop right. putting it in literally everything. everything. Stop I want, it. I want, okay, listeners, um, once society opens up again, if you somehow find yourself bored, even though you have infinite things to do again, <laughs> um, go to your local Ulta or whatever your local, uh, like, drugstore skincare slash makeup shop is and count the number of items you see that have (laughs) have CBD. CBD. I was in a coffee shop and they were selling CBD beans for a ridiculous price. It was so expensive and Ken and I did the math for like how much you would have to consume to get any sort of effect from it and it was like 
multiple, many multiple bags of coffee beans. Oh You'd have God. to, like, eat them straight. Coffee makes you poop anyway. Yeah, you, you would just... Exactly. Um. So, and the, another thing is, like, the amount... So, the concentration of CBD in the oil that you buy over the counter at, you know, wherever mm. also might contain more THC than what is technically legal. <laughs> like, there might be more THC than CBD because they're doing it on the cheap so now that we've discussed CBD in some detail, cannabis itself has been used for spiritual and healing purposes since as far back as 1500 BC, and there's evidence that people living in the Pamir Mountains of Central Asia smoked cannabis. Today, the cultivation, possession, and use of cannabis is illegal in most countries, and in America, it is a Schedule One drug. So, for a fairly brief foray into drug scheduling in specifically the United States, so, Schedule One drugs, which includes uh, marijuana, are considered most dangerous, which I am air-quoting because this isn't entirely true, which I will get into in a minute. Mm -hmm. Other Schedule One drugs include heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and psilocybin. Schedule Two drugs include cocaine, methamphetamine, and oxycodone, Adderall, Ritalin, and Vicodin. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause right there, because as somebody who used to live in a legal state, I wanna, I wanna make this very clear. I used to live in Michigan, where for, like, a hot minute now, uh, weed has been legal, and I have, in fact, partaken. <laughs> uh, I choose not to comment. That's fair. But as somebody who will openly admit that I have smoked weed because I lived in a legal state, I, I wanna say right now... That weed is not more dangerous than cocaine. <laughs> I've never done cocaine to be, like, not not my style. Uh, however. <laughs> Please don't do cocaine. Just say no. So, yeah, so Ritalin is a Schedule 2, which is considered, it's less, I guess you could say, policed than Schedule 1. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes down from there, basically, in perceived risk, yeah. you could say. Schedule 1 and 2 drugs are described as having a high potential for abuse, and how the FDA determines if it has a high potential for abuse is they take a group of people who have previously used drugs, and they basically give drugs to them and then ask them, how much would you, if this was available on the street, how much would you, do you think it would be worth? Mm -hmm. So there are, um fair amount of issues with that. Yeah. Um, so you're only getting responses from people who have previously sought out drugs. Mm -hmm. And it, just because a person who seeks drugs would put a lot of value on a substance doesn't mean that a person who is not a drug seeker would right. go for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the drug scheduling between one and two is fairly vague. It really comes down to whether it's not so much like what is more dangerous as if the federal government thinks that it has medical value. Wait, so cocaine has more medical value <laughs> than marijuana? Yeah. So the DEA says schedule two drugs have medical value while schedule one drugs do not. So schedule one drugs are more tightly controlled even though they may not actually be more dangerous. Okay, so follow up to that. Um, what medical value does cocaine have? <laughs> I know. Well, I know, like, people used to use it, it, like, if you, if your, like, ear got ripped off or something, they would put a little coca on there and it would numb the nerve endings, basically. Sure. But. Yeah. It's very vague, though. And. Yeah. Right. It seems, it seems very counterintuitive to have methamphetamine, oxycodone, Vicodin, those are all Schedule 2 drugs. Yeah, also meth. Yeah, so the um, 
Schedule 1 drugs being the most dangerous is not entirely true. Right. Which I'll talk about more in a second, um, but a good example is, like, the use of CBD to treat different conditions, and psilocybin research is being done on how it affects PTSD mm-hmm. therapy. So, more Schedule 1 drugs, or the ones that we've talked about, are used medicinally more than, like, meth. <laughs> yeah. But I also, I'm not an expert, so, you know, don't call yeah, me on that. Yeah, it seems more like um, a reason to be racist. Right, yeah, so there's, there's a huge social component behind a lot of these regulations that I won't dive too deep into, but at the time in the 60s when they there were discussions of, like, what do we make illegal mm-hmm. and how do we schedule it, um, there was concern about how, what drugs like cannabis and LSD would do to Americans morally. So, like, the presence of LSD or marijuana would be morally detrimental to the American people, uh, which is stupid. Um, yeah. And this stems from propaganda tactics because mm-hmm. there was a lot of... with cannabis specifically a lot of racism towards mexican people because they give part like the name marijuana was given to it because it sounds hispanic Mm. and making it sound foreign made it scary there's a lot of really interesting social contexts at the time there's a lot of racial prejudices they put out stuff like reefer madness where it's basically misinformation for what it actually does and there was big money behind moves to make it illegal basically like big tobacco was involved cotton was involved um it just it seems silly it seems very backwards that yeah that marijuana is a schedule one Mm-hmm. drug. I'm gonna steer back. This is my last little segment, and it is about Ooh. a person. It's shorter than I wanted because she's fairly young, and it's uh, current, you know, kind of caught up on oh. her timeline. Excellent. So I'm gonna talk about Dr. Natalie Schmitz, who is an assistant professor at the UW-Madison Pharmacy School and oh. uh, Dearest Kenton's lab PI. Oh, <laughs> sweet. He sort of sent me in the direction to read about Dr. Schmitz very late in me writing this episode, and I <laughs> added her last minute, which also plays a factor into its length, but she is equally as badass than the other women I've talked about. Um, so Natalie Schmitz is assistant professor of pharmacy at UW-Madison. She got her PharmD and so her... Uh, doctorate in pharmacy, Mm -hmm. and master's in public administration from Drake University, her PhD in experimental and clinical pharmacology from the University of Minnesota, and became a medical cannabis pharmacist through Minnesota Medical Solutions. She explored a range of careers and eventually found a passion for improving patient care, which is really cool because I think a lot of healthcare professionals become detached from patient care, basically Mm -hmm. making it the best it can be and remembering that patients are people and... Yeah, the humanity of it. Yeah, the humanity of it. So she started working as a medical cannabis pharmacist, and she worked with patients to select a product, determine the dosage, and put a routine in place to help with symptoms. Mm. Her current research optimizes therapies with cannabinoids for neurologic conditions by studying safety and efficacy, and efficacy is the ability to get the result you're looking for in a study. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin currently recognizes 13 conditions that make a patient eligible for medical cannabis treatment, and Dr. Schmitz is currently interested in movement disorders, so stuff like multiple sclerosis, uh, traumatic brain or spinal cord injuries, and cerebral palsy, mm. which is really cool. 
Uh, she says, the more I learn about movement disorders, the more interesting they've become. Even small changes for people with movement disorders that impact their lives on such a big level can dramatically improve their quality of life. There's still a lot to be learned about those diseases. And I think it's really, really cool using this sort of innovative way to treat something that is very, very important yeah, um, to a lot of people. Uh, so Schmitz will be collaborating with Dr. Paul Hudson, who is another UW professor, and he is studying psilocybin, and Dr. Barry Goodall, a UW, another UW professor, studying epilepsy at the pharmacy school. So she's working pretty closely with Hudson because they need FDA approval to get drug studies done, so he right. has experience with that because he works with psilocybin and post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, so yeah. So there's a lot of really cool research coming out of UW-Madison. Nice. We'll plug for home. Yeah. <laughs> and that is what I had for our jaunt through some badass ladies today. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us listeners who have stuck this far yeah so we're gonna do our end, end segment now so typically um we do this end segment with the first episode we did uh mansplaining stories from reddit um mm -hmm. the second episode hannah found <laughs> a lovely article from the, the 1950s old timey from ladies home journal this time reddit failed me miserably <laughs> and we couldn't do two ladies home journals in a row no listeners i'm begging you Go to our website. Go to our website. Go to our contact page. If you haven't been to our website, yeah, feminarratives do. Feminarrativespodc.wixsite.com slash my site. I know it is a terrible address. Uh, We're so sorry. It's free, though. <laughs> it is free. When we have money, we'll maybe think about paying for a better address. Share this on your Facebook page. Forward it to your friends so we can get sponsored. Please. And then we will get a better website we'll get domain, a better website. we promise. But on our website, there is a lovely contact form, and you there can is. send us anything your heart desires. Yes. And if it's funny or interesting, we will read it. We will share it. podcast. Yeah. I want to maybe veer away from a mansplaining section mm -hmm. and just be like, uh, I don't know. It is very amorphous right now. I'm sorry. No. Listeners, I'm eating a maraschino cherry. Really good podcast. <laughs> uh, in the vein of our amorphous... Um, end segment i am going to read from excerpts from our latest issue of cosmo so cosmo. dear uh who is, what is this? her name morgan, morgan harps so some listeners some backstory so we moved into this apartment in august of 2019 and since then we have been getting unsolicited copies of cosmopolitan every month like clockwork we didn't order it we don't morgan harps apparently did we have no way to contact her mm -mm. I don't, I would never pay for Cosmo. It's not really our thing, but it is very entertaining to it read. Is highly entertaining. We've, we've had this issue sitting on our coffee table just close waiting to a month now. Yeah, so we're calling we're gonna... to us. And also, as, keeping with our theme, I have no idea. I haven't cracked open this edition. Oh, yeah. Hannah has no clue, and this was something that I'm I threw together. Excited. The only thing, my reaction earlier was because there is a picture of Miley Cyrus. At some event, but she has what can only be described as pl silver pleather suspenders on and a bejeweled loincloth and nothing else. <laughs> oh, so Hannah, we're going to find out what your senior superlative should have been. Oh. Um, in a quiz. <laughs> oh, okay. I, so I first need 
your answer to uh, when was your first lip to lip? Uh, and your <laughs> options are either what on the playground or middle or high school, and I had braces. Those are my two options. Those are your two options. Neither of those things. Uh, first of all, calling your first kiss your first lip to lip is disgusting. That is the worst phrase I've ever heard. Ew, it's gross. <laughs> Ew. Uh, I don't know what to... It was sophomore year of high school. So I don't know what... School. Yeah, I get, I never had braces, though, so Cosmo, okay. you're doing a terrible job of designing a study. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so <laughs> As you, always. You, so your superlative is most something. We're most gonna, something. We're <laughs> just leave it at that. That's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> most something. So then the only other question, because there's only two questions in this quiz. Oh, of course. The Of course. <laughs> the only other question that I need uh, answers to is, um, how did you get to school? So your options are, I was a walker, the bus, just like everybody else, my mom or dad drove me, my brain blocks out traumatic memories, question what mark. What the hell happened to you on the way to school? Cosmo, why would you write that? Um, <laughs> oh my god. Like, <laughs> like, riding a bike to school, school is the most traumatizing thing that's ever... Like, you're biking, you're like, hey! <laughs> Just stopping on your way to school every day. You show up in your first hour, teacher's like, oh my god. Uh, I skip schools most days. <laughs> most days? I never graduated high school. Is that an answer? <laughs> 20 minutes late with a latte. Uh, <laughs> with my cool older friends. Oh, yikes. <laughs> or I came from sports practice every single day. There's not an I drove myself <sighs> answer anywhere on here. Yeah, I was going to say I was dropped off and then for a while my high school boyfriend had a car and he would drive me because I was very fancy. And then I don't remember if I drove myself to school or not or if I continued getting rides because he had a convertible and I felt really cool. So we can go with mom or dad drove <laughs> Yeah, you? let's do that That one. seems like the closest. So you are most likely to go viral on TikTok. Oh, gross. No. was never a superlative because TikTok wasn't TikTok a thing didn't until... exist. I graduated high school six years ago. <laughs> no. I'm, like, Vine was a thing. So... Gross. I don't... Um... So mine would be, uh, I, my, my first kiss was on the playground. Um, um, so mine would have been on the playground, which means I'm least something. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> least something. <laughs> no. I took the bus to school. So I got to school by the bus like everybody else, apparently. So I am the least likely to get a cheap, spontaneous tattoo. Uh, lies. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't want to say it, but I was like, that doesn't sound... No. What? This one is much more like me. Most likely to have a sandwich named after them. Oh, yeah, that's very Hannah. Um, Too funny. That's all I have for our expedition into Cosmo. Thoroughly. We will see. He'll hear us. You'll hear uh, us. Okay, so uh, Facebook and Instagram yes. are at Feminaritas Podcast. Twitter is at Fem Podcast. Our website is feminaritaspodc.wix site. That's wix, W-I-X dot com slash my site. You can send us a message that way. Somebody send us a message, please. I feel lonely. All of our show notes and some pictures related to our topic today will be up on the sources page. Yeah. Other than that, 
You'll hear us next You'll week. Hear us next week. Somebody sent us a recommendation for a better outcome. <laughs>